Welcome to All About Campion, an introduction to loving the films of Jane Campion. I'm Mingu Kang, a critic at the Washington Post, and I'm joined today, as usual, by my co-host Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate. Hey, Ingu. We are also here today with Alonzo Duraldi, who discussed Pain and Glory with us and gave us a crash course on why Spain didn't have a success on All About Amadovar. If you missed that episode, I highly suggest you go back and listen. It's a deep dive on Spanish 20th century history and a really fun and, if I remember correctly, quite horny discussion of one of Amadovar's best masterpieces. And yes, he is a type of grandmaster who has both major and minor masterpieces. Anyway, hello, Alonzo. Hello, guys. Um, uh, thanks for having me back. I do not have the depth of history on New Zealand the way I did with Spain. So just want to warn you up front. Um, that's not what I'm bringing to this time. It's cool. That's why we had, that's why we had Rooney on. He gave Perfect. us a lot of New Zealand and Australia content. <laughs> hey, Alonzo, who are you? Uh, I'm the film reviews editor of The Wrap, uh, co-host of the Linoleum Knife, Breakfast All Day, and Maximum Film Podcasts, and my next book, a uh, collaboration with the Deck the Hallmark podcast called I'll Be Home for Christmas Movies, is out uh, October 26th and is currently available for pre-order wherever you buy books. Alonzo is also the unofficial godfather of our podcast because he came very close to renaming it. We are the Campions. <laughs> However... We are going to stick with our original title. We Are the Campions is very, very good. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Ingu did come on a podcast I used to do called A Film and a Movie to talk about Almodovar's All About My Mother. So I like to think that was something of a jumping off point for you guys to get into these conversations. I'll take credit for that, even if I don't deserve it. Credit given. That's fine. <laughs> Last week, we talked about Jane Campion's first movie, Sweetie. In this episode, we are going to talk about An Angel at My Table, the 1990 biopic of writer Janet Frame, who penned novels, poetry, and three autobiographies on which Campion's adaptation is based. After winning the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival, An Angel at My Table was released theatrically in many countries, but to me, its TV roots feel very obvious. It originally ran as a three-part miniseries on New Zealand TV, and even though the line between film and television has become borderline non-existent at this point, we can talk about whether we might judge it differently as a miniseries versus a movie. Taking place in New Zealand and briefly in London, Paris, and Ibiza, Ibiza? from the 1930s to the 1960s, An Angel at My Table was Campion's second feature, arriving three years before the piano. It made her an auteur on the international art house scene and undoubtedly set some of the scaffolding for the legendary romance's blockbuster success. Frame was a friend of Campion's godmother, which probably paved the way for her to get the rights to the autobiographies when the filmmaker had only made one big short by then. Campion first encountered Frame's work as a young teenager through the novel Owls Don't Cry, about a young woman who becomes institutionalized because of her extreme anxiety. But according to Campion's telling, An Angel at My Table is in many ways also about her own mother. Edith Campion, a stage actress, spent her adult years in and out of psychiatric hospitals because of her severe depression. And in interviews, Jane Campion has said that she saw much of her childhood in Owl's Own Cry. 
The opening foreshadowing scene, for example, in which a young Janet passes by a psychiatric hospital she'll later end up as, is paralleled in Campion's own life, a quote-unquote notorious loony bin the Campion family used to pass by regularly later became a place where her own mother would be committed. Edith Campion cameos as a teacher, reading Tennyson, who enthralls a young Janet. The screenplay is credited to Laura Jones, but by some accounts, Campion excised parts of Frame's biography that parallel her own life less acutely, like almost anything could do with World War II, and changed certain details in Frame's life to better match her mother's own story. So before we get into our discussion, what happens in An Angel at My Table, Daniel? And who is the angel? Oh, I wish I knew who the angel was. (laughs) And, you know, nothing happens in this movie, but also a lot happens. Um, So this movie, the film is broken into three parts. The first third focuses on Janet's childhood or experiences as a young girl, including her time in primary school, her discovery of sex when she watches her older sister Myrtle canoodle with a local boy, and her first writing successes composing childhood poetry where she wins a free trip to a library. I, th- I think that's what happened. Um, Jane is Jane, Janet. It's kind of used interchangeably, or is it Jean? I don't. I couldn't ever tell with the accents. Jean is what the <clears throat> what they keep calling her as a child. Yeah, great. Janet is a uh, very close to her sisters, and as we track her adolescence, we encounter her first major life tragedy when her older sister drowns one day while out at the baths. After her sister's passing. Janet's social life becomes rather empty as she seems unable to connect with other girls her age while in school, which continues on through university. She tries her hand at teaching for a bit, but is not cut out for it, and when one of her professors reads her autobiography, he compliments her on it, but seems unsettled by its contents and ends up encouraging her to enter a psychiatric hospital where she's diagnosed with schizophrenia. A little later, news comes that her another one of her sisters, Isabel, has died, and Jane spends the next eight years of her life enduring electroshock therapy in a psychiatric hospital and is scheduled for a lobotomy that at the last minute is canceled when her first collection of short stories wins a literary prize. What a twist of fate. (laughs) Yeah. Good to know that a literary prize can get me out of a medical procedure. Um, (laughs) She continues writing, publishing a novel, and is awarded a writing grant that allows her to travel to London, Paris, and Spain. While in Spain, she encounters the first romance of her life with Bernard, an American man, also abroad for the summer. They have an exciting romance that ends abruptly when Bernard must return to the States to teach in the fall. Janet continues writing back in London until news comes that her mother has passed, so she packs up and heads back to New Zealand, where she spends her time writing in a small trailer outside her sister's house. So... Alonzo, when we first invited you on, I asked you which movie of Jane Campion's you wanted to discuss, and you chose this one, which, as I was watching the movie, flummoxed me a little bit. (laughs) Uh, What made you choose this? Well, you know, to be honest, I am not a, a Campion completist. I still have uh, some catching up to do for the entire oeuvre. So, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting. You guys, if, when you create this podcast, it's a way to sort of, you know, force yourself to like, you know, fill in blanks. And, and I, I've certainly done that and myself with different shows. Um, this is a movie that I, 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 it really struck me when I first saw it just because uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, the Australian filmmaker Gillian Armstrong. And I think there is, there's a lot of connective tissue between this film and my brilliant career in terms of being about young women who are absolutely bound and determined to write, even though they are in sort of social circumstances and historical circumstances that might stand in their way. Obviously, you know, my brilliant career is set 
quite a bit earlier and um, you know there's there's a lot more sort of uh, walls between uh, a woman and a career in the arts but you know it doesn't deal with these sort of mental health issues and other things that that Janet Frame has to address in this movie uh, interestingly enough uh, Laura uh, Jones who wrote this film also collaborated with Armstrong on several films including the great high tide which was unavailable in the, this in this country for a long time but I think it's on Tubi now as well as Oscar and Lucinda and a few other ones. But I think also what I like about this movie is that I've seen so many terrible biopics about writers. Movies just get this wrong all the time. Um, a recent example that I found super annoying was the film uh, The Man Who Invented Christmas, which was the backstory of how Dickens came to write a Christmas story. And it's the kind of movie where literally people in conversations are giving him the best lines for the book, you know? And so it's, it reduces the author to like a stenographer who's just kind of writing stuff down. And I think this movie, it does a much better job of like, it assumes the idea that, a, that a, a, an artist, certainly a writer, but all artists are kind of the sum of their experiences. And so the film focuses on the experiences without sort of labor, laboriously connecting the dots of like, this happened to me and then I wrote about it and then it became a big hit, you know? Like, Instead of getting the usual montage of like spinning headlines and the book climbing the bestseller charts, we have her waiting to get a lobotomy in the hospital and the doctor telling her, oh, no, no, that's off. You won a literary prize. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I very much like the approach that Campion and Jones take the material to the material here because uh, so many filmmakers get biopics so wrong. I think this is one I would point to to say this is how you tell this story and not without getting trapped in the sort of awful tropes and conventions that so frequently arise when people are doing it. Well, I guess my question about that, though, is like, how aware of Janet Frame's work were you before seeing this film? Because I hadn't ever read anything by her. I didn't really know who she was. And so like, a lot of this felt like disjointed and unconnected and like just, okay, well, I'm watching a person's life, which doesn't really ever have much narrative cohesion, but I feel like it probably made more sense if you were aware of her work. So I'm curious if you have any background with that. That that may well be true. I have not read any frame, actually. I, I have a collection of the three autobiographies that a friend of mine gave me some time ago, and I still haven't read. I'm embarrassed to admit. I hope she's not listening. She's not. No so, one yeah. listens to this. <laughs> so I can imagine where, yes, probably if I had read her stuff, I would be like, oh, that's like that moment in this book where the thing happens, you know. But I think I because I was so unaware of her actual work, I didn't come into the film and, and didn't, again, rewatching it for, for y'all, with any sort of preconceived, oh, well, are they going to cover this aspect or that part? And so I just kind of went with it. I, and, and to me, it very much felt like... Campion bringing that, um, you know, there is a female gaze to this film, not just in terms of how it addresses female friendships or female sexuality, but like there's so many useless men in this movie. Like not all of them. Some of them are are are, are helpful and and smart and and you know like get what's going on and and help her get to the next level of her career. But man, so many of them are just are completely oblivious and dealing with their own crap. And and I thought that th th this is the kind of thing I think that we don't see enough in w stories about women, certainly about women who are creators. I think that there has been this like very big shift in the sort of biopic industrial complex in the last 10 years, where we used to get a lot of biopics that were like, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And now we have 
a lot more studio biopics, at least, that really focus on one particular incident in an artist's life. And then sort of like sometimes we'll pan out a little bit more to provide more context, to provide more biographical context. But I feel like this movie very much feels like something before that revolution, right? Like, like, I mean, obviously, because this movie is from like 30 years ago. But I think Daniel and I generally had the same response to this, which is like, you don't really get like a sense of what her writing is about, other than sort of like responses to things that happened in her life. But you don't really get a sense of like, what is the plot? Like, what is her writing style like? And so periodically, I kept like asking myself, like, what is the point of this? Like, if I don't know already who Janet Frame is, like, why am I supposed to care about her story? Which is, like, obviously very fascinating. But I think that the other thing that really struck me while I was watching this is that there are so many elements of this that just sort of seem pieced out of, like, a gothic tale. You have, like, all of these dead siblings. You have this, like... Well, and even, like, the first line or whatever is, like, I had a dead si- I had a dead twin. yeah who like died after two weeks, and then she becomes institutionalized for eight years. And a lot of like the much like gorier details in her life story seem very like papered over in a way that I found interesting. I mean, like my, my father, for example, was born in 1920. You know, uh, he was pretty old when I was born and was born in Spain. And uh, his mother, I think, gave birth to nine children, but only three of them survived past the age of like 10. So uh, for me, what, what White Reed is gothic to me just seems like, oh, well, that was the early 20th century in, you know, places that were maybe somewhat agrarian, you know, uh, I, that's just how people's lives were, you know, so it, it never struck me as being that weird. You're right. I think the film never takes that moment to like, by the way, for those of you who haven't read Janet Frame, here's a passage from this or that where we're going to read it out loud or put it on the screen or have her read it to somebody or something. There's very little of her actual text in the film. And so you're right. The movie doesn't tie that together, but I don't know. I There's something about the way that Campion and Jones tell this story, the performances by the three actresses playing Janet, um, I, I do, you know, I can relate to any life story where candy becomes a, a major, you know, like uh, 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 engine for bad decisions, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I it's true. I, I, I should go and find out more about her stuff. But it, that, that never stood in the way for me. I don't know. There, And maybe it's that I saw this movie, I was in my early 20s, and, and it was sort of in that phase of my life where I was really having access to a lot of art house cinema for the first time. And so I was much more open to just, what do you got? I'll take it. But yeah, I don't know. For me, this movie works. And, and I think that, that it, it, it operates as just a, a woman's story. Um, even if you don't know, you know, who that woman is or what she did with her life, just the stuff that she went through, the fact that she was able to sort of, tap into this creativity, you know, when there's no, not much encouragement to it, you know, because of, because of where she comes from, because of, you know, her gender, all that stuff. I don't know. Those were the things that kind of carried me through, even though I I agree with you, it is somewhat elliptical. If you don't walk into this movie versed in her life and her work. I think one of the things that uh, Daniel and I are also encountering watching Jane Cambion's filmography and mass is that neither of us are experts in New Zealand or Australia. And I think one of the really great 
quote-unquote exotic elements of this is like both this like extremely I don't know like ragged 1930s like upbringing in New Zealand because they're yeah you wouldn't shut up about how grimy everybody was yes it's an extremely (laughs) grimy movie it's not just about like this whole thing in like a different country in the past it's also very much about these like incredibly poor children like the first scenes that you see of like Janet in school her hair is like weird but like her hair is like the least of her problems because all of her clothes not only are they ill-fitting, but they're, like, frayed. The collar, like, of the sweater is broken. And everyone is sort of, like, more or less wearing, like, the exact same sweater. They're oh, all but just... when but when Chris Evans wears it and knives out, it's sexy. Is that what you're saying? I don't think that that is the same kind of sweater at all. <laughs> No, you're you're for, for sure that the, you can tell like the the ne- when when she when she tries to claim that her dad gave her money to buy candy for the class, it's like if you're if you're wearing that sweater to school every day, your family does not have money to throw around on stuff like that. Yeah, and I was really struck by like all of that, and it like really made me appreciate that there was a movie that was like about this because you don't see like dirty children. <laughs> in the movies um and i think this was like very evocative of like that particular childhood but i i don't know like i was i guess like where like where i want to end up with that is that like one of the things that were that felt very gothic to me is that like you have this like extremely not only like poor childhood but also this like very medicalized childhood right you have like the brother with epilepsy that he gets made right. fun of for all the time you get the school nurse basically like pulling Janet out with like a couple of other kids as like the sick kids. And there is this like heavy stigmatization of her like from the very start, like for her body and for like her dirt. And you see these like close ups of like dirty nails and dirty teeth. And I don't know. I, it was a very striking. I think it's an interesting portrait, though, of living with anxiety. Like the way that she has such a hard time interacting with people that she she can't teach with the inspector sitting in the back of the room. When she flees and is just like sobbing, running away, holding her shoes or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then when she finally meets that doctor who's like, if people tell you to like leave the apartment and go mingle and you don't want to, don't. You know, and, and it's that moment where like no one has ever given her that permission before that, that like the expectation has always been, oh, you have to go and sit at the tea party and be gracious and make idle chit chat. And some people just don't know how to do that and don't want to do that. And, and you sense those moments where she tries to like, like when she's in Ibiza and she, she launches into that conversation about the status of her luggage, and everybody just sort of stares at her. I, you know, I, I think the movie's very, compassionate towards her and very empathetic for her and and i think it's always interesting to see it's so it's easy to like throw the the character in the snake pit and have the people bang 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 the walls and show you like oh look at all the mad women you know but i i love i love the sort of granular nature of her anxiety and her shyness and how obviously she's very expressive on the page but in person she's just very locked down and and i think fox acts the shit out of that and like really makes it feel vivid and understandable and relatable. Well, and I think that like what is also really interesting about this as a portrait of a writer is that like she's from like a working class family who isn't uh who isn't versed in this uh like what it's like to like have a writer as a child or like what it is like to like have an intellectual pursuit as your career 
when your background is so poor that like there are times where she tries to like have the standard job where she like tries to interviews to interview to be a nurse at one point which they don't let her because she is diagnosed with schizophrenia um or like when she tries to teach and then tries and then like becomes like a cafeteria lady or something like she tries these ways to fit into what she thinks is like normal for her class and normal for her like upbringing but she just can't because she is this like particular other creature that her family doesn't know how to deal with and so she doesn't really know how to deal with herself but i think what like was actually really great is that her family in some sense not her parents but her sister like do know how to deal with her I mean, like, I, I'm, i like, really fixated on all of, like, the dirt um, on her body. But, like, I think one of the reasons is for that is because there's this, like, connection that she feels to the land. She grows, grows up in this, like, extremely, like, not quite, like, agricultural, but definitely rural area. And, like, all of her, like, play stuff is just, like, happening in the woods, in the fields. And it's happening with either her sister's. Or, like, this, like, one friend that she gets to have for, like, a very short period of time. And there's this sort of, like, earthiness. And it's sort of, like, the only place where where she fe- really feels at comfort. And when she grows older, you still get these, like, little flashbacks to her past when she's just with her sisters. There's a sort of, like, very, like, little woman quality to the entire production. You know, this, like, preponderance of daughters and just sort of obviously sort of like the random death but also this whole idea of like you fit so perfectly into this like one particular world that you grew up in and then when you're sort of foisted outside into the outside world where you have much more where you're sort of forced to take care of yourself and take care of other people like she can't do it that's one of the things that I like about my brilliant career because uh, it's the you know you have this character who her mother actually comes from a wealthy family but she married sort of beneath her and so you know she she lives on the father's you know farm out in the middle of nowhere but then gets sent to go live with the rich relatives and the rich relatives basically want to marry her off and that's like that's their idea of what you do with a woman and so <clears throat> neither as the child of a, a farmer or as the sort of grandchild of this privilege, does anybody like say, oh yes, uh, being an, becoming an author is absolutely, you know, a life path. And so often, I mean, you know, I, there are any number of artists and writers and I mean, you know, my husband certainly come who come from families that not only don't nurture the idea of you becoming an artist, but are actively suspicious of it, you know, and don't think that it's a it's a viable way to make a living or to or whatever. And so but can't that- relate. My Asian parents were always very <laughs> encouraging of my creativity and my literary pursuits. Can't relate either for when I got into grad school and my mother's first response was what are you going to do with that? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so that's the, you know, I, I think those are interesting stories to tell because unless you are, you know, Jason Reitman or Jean Renoir or something like, you know, you, you know, if you're a, if you're an artist or a creator of any kind, you probably grew up around people who did something else entirely and don't get it and, and aren't, and haven't been shaped by society to take that stuff seriously, uh, certainly as a, as a career, as a, as a, as a, as a mode of, you know, like how to live and where, where to exert your energies. So I find those stories endlessly fascinating because you know, you, you have to overcome 
it it it's in a way it's 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 akin to the coming out story you know odds are if you're a queer person your parents were not and you know you have to sort of divorce yourself from your upbringing enough to take care of yourself and hope that they eventually come around to who it is you are and i think for the same thing if if you're a writer a painter a sculptor and you come from farm folk or you know steel workers or whatever you have to do that same thing where like you have to you have to nurture yourself and become your own sort of family support and then hope that your real family support eventually catches up. And I think that that's actually kind of, it's it's kind of clear early on that she is able to, even if not consciously, is able to do that for herself. I'm reminded of the scene early on in the film that is one of my favorites where her sister tries to get her to change the word in her poem yes. from touch, the shadows touch the uh, sky or whatever to like the shadows tinted because poems have specific words associated with specific images and like you can see her try to like her sister try to force that note upon her but then the next scene immediately is like her poem getting read in class and you hear that she kept the word that she was that was hers and it just yeah, like that she believed in exactly and so even like from such a young age she had confidence in her work even if she didn't really understand that yet i think that um <laughs> Daniel and I watched this together and we were making a bunch of jokes about how this is our crossover Amadour episode. I think mostly because uh there were there were scenes like in Spain. But I think that like And because it was it had a lot of incongruous plot. <laughs> and the and the hair is a character. <laughs> I mean Almodovar loves red too, so <laughs> But I think the thing that like I kept coming back to is a sort of like very loving and yet like really fearful portrayal of where you come from, and this idea of like the New Zealand back backwaters, like where she is from, being a place of like extreme stiflement, and yet at the same time like the one like randomly the place that she sort of like feels actually at home and able to talk more to other people around her, and she sort of like knows what's going on. And, like, I don't know, like, the whole movie ends with her back in New Zealand in the 60s, like, living in a caravan or maybe just, like, working in a little trailer in her sister's backyard. And for some reason, like, that made me really happy that she was sort of, like, able to go back and instead of sort of fleeing where she came from, like, permanently to Europe or wherever, she was able to sort of, like, make peace with where she came from and sort of like be with her family who are the only people who really understand her like all over again. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I think that there is something satisfying about, you know, she she is living the kind of life where, yes, she's got to get out of there. But if you can get out of there and then eventually come back on your own terms and still yeah. live the life that you want to live in this place that you think of as home, then yeah, then that's, that's a, absolutely a triumph. We don't know what that's like, but it sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of these days, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let's let's talk a little about the men because I think that you know there are some mentors along the way who help out. The naked novelist, men tours. Oh. <laughs> person tours uh the the yeah the, the naked novelist i think obviously sort of gives her like room to to 
you know, a room of her own, if you will. Uh, to, to, to Or as Ingu said at the end of the film when we watched it, a trailer of her own. <laughs> a shack of her own. No, a hut. He, he gives her the hut early on, you know. And so, like, that that gives her the literal and 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 sort of mental space that she needs to, to do her work and to sort of not feel, you know, not be pestered by the very impertinent questions of her young nephews. Um, you know, there's, like I said, there's the doctor who, who tells her she doesn't have to mingle if she doesn't want to and who, who reads the novel, you know, and, and, or the, the memoir and gives her the, the go ahead to like continue with it. And so, you know, they're great. And I think the, the father is, you know, He's not a monster, you know. I think no. I, he I, buys her that like blank that, book. Yes, uh, that beautiful like the book with the, like beautiful marbled co- like cover. Yeah, that, that journal is her f- first like blank pages to fill. Yeah, you know he overreacted her use of the f word, but you know what parent wouldn't. Uh, Especially when it's it's not even just her use of the F word, but it's that like you just revealed that my other daughter had sex. <laughs> True, yeah, she is ratting out her sister. Uh, it's a yeah, it's a, it's a there's a lot. Though going I love on there. that, like I lo- I love that as a moment of like she's so unaware of like social conventions about things like that. Sure, that she just tells her parents that oh they were they were fucking like she doesn't think it's a big deal until she is kind of told that by others right no in that it's that immediate moment that you have as a child we're like uh oh like I, now i feel shame i'm not even sure why but i know i do you know it's a very like garden of eden moment where like you learn to learn shame right and i think another man that was really important to her was her literary agent who was like hey here's a apartment right when she went back to london go write yeah, a bestseller like, Easy yeah. peasy. Come in a Rolls Royce. <laughs> yes. But you know, like like the the American guy, I mean the <laughs> the idea of somebody who's going to interrupt having sex with you so you can give him notes. That's like that that is a really intense form of, of, sort of literary of vanity. <laughs> Ryan Murphy skit somewhere. I loved how horrified and uncomfortable she was in that moment. Like the actress did such a good job of just being like, oh shit, that's what this is right now. God damn it. It was very funny. Bad enough I have to pretend to like your poetry, but like now, right now? Really? Mm-hmm. I also uh was the one moment that like I thought found very funny, but also like, huh, was when uh she was when she was still in New Zealand and uh, is like given that space to write by that guy. And then she gets the news that her, one of her stories had been published and he's like, huh, that was fast. Kind of like a, she, she just seemed to have so many literary successes one after another, after another, she never failed, which is like great, but also like what? Well, hmm. She also spent eight years in mental institutions, Daniel. So, you know, cut her a break. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How much more suffering do you want for her art? <laughs> <laughs> I just want one rejection letter. I will say that, like, one of the things that this whole production, to me, suffers from a little bit, if you don't know where the story is going to go because you've never heard of Janet Frame because you are one of the three people listening, like, on this podcast, or probably, like, a member of the general public, is that there is a sort of, like, lack of suspense and I think like the intrusions of all of this men, all of these men into her life do provide like a little bit like that facade that you need. I think that like one of the things that Daniel and I kept yelling at the screen is like, especially as the movie kept going, was like, get laid. <laughs> because I really wanted that for her. 
uh, so much of this movie is about disconnection and like being unable to connect with, with other people and being unable to fit in. And I just really wanted her to find at least like one connection. And I really hoped it was not with like the super racist Irish guy in London who gloms onto her like that's so creepy he just decides that he's gonna like that they're they're together now it's like I just met you what are you talking he basically like wanted to be her pimp without like the sex part like he was like extremely controlling like very much from the start it like very much reminded me of just like a guy who like comes over and starts like pushing your buttons to see how far like how far he will be able to go And she is such a passive character throughout that I was really worried for her. And so for to see that like she still, even though she's sort of like carried through by like the winds of fate somewhat in this movie and that she seems to get very little choice in how her life goes, uh, the fact that like she's able to sort of like stand up enough for herself to run away from that Irish guy made me really relieved. And I do think that like all of these men and their potential horribleness is like a really big source of suspense in this production. But like, I guess it also speaks a lot to just how this movie teaches us to like look at men, which is basically almost always as a source of threat. Because literally, what else would they be? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> and I, th- I think this also, it, it, you know, sort of has a, a role in, and I mean, it's a true story, so it's different than, you know, a narrative depiction. But, you know, there is this sort of history in, you know, the 19th and 20th centuries about how women who were considered difficult in any way just got shunted off to these institutions. Um, Which is literally the story. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know if y'all have seen the Mad Women's Ball, the new uh, Melanie LeRaw movie that's on Amazon Prime, but it's like, you know, there's this sense almost where... The, the, where the, where the mental institution sort of replaces the witch burning stake as sort of like, mm-hmm. here's what you do with women who don't conform, women who don't comply, women who are, you know, too demanding or, or, or too, you know, uh, headstrong or independent or whatever. And so I think, you know, she sort of falls into that tragic history. And so we see over the course of this film where she has to endure the, 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 the institutionalization and then sort of eventually come out of it and understand that she, in fact, was not schizophrenic and, and that, you know, that she was misdiagnosed all this time. But I just I, I find that to be a really interesting, you know, just the, the, the fact that it that it took place in real life and then the fact that it's so frequently become subject matter for movies and novels and plays and operas, you know, about, uh, you know, women and madness. I I think there's like, that's a whole almost sort of literary subgenre. Yes. I was also really struck by, there are so many like pieces of this movie that made me wish it had been like a nine part production instead of like a three part production because you get these like really interesting storylines and then they have sort of no end to them. And you're sort of like, but what happened with this thing? For example, like the father goes off to war for World War II and he's like, I'm going to go kill Hitler or whatever. And then there's no like ending (laughs) to that whole thing. I think there's so much I wanted to learn more about like why in the world was this woman diagnosed with schizophrenia? of all 
the things that she could be diagnosed with. And I think the movie sort of does this like a really great job of positing like one of the very first men she's attracted to, her psychology professor, Dr. Forrest or Forrester or whatever, as like first like a possible love interest, which I think in from like a 2021 lens is like already like a little bit squeaky because like you want her to have like the sexual experience but you're sort of also like but like with your teacher like can you not find like a peer yeah and then for him to be like the person who like is the instrumental figure in having her institutionalized that's a threat like that's so scary and like what a fucking betrayal but then you never really understand like how in the world she's supposed to have schizophrenia especially like according to like a guy who is a professor of psychology well does he diagnose her or do they do it at the hospital i think he wants he thinks that she should be institutionalized because of her suicide attempt uh you know he asks her about swallowing all the aspirins and she said oh, oh, okay. i was able to just do it and what a great response <laughs> that she gave him because she's just like oh i just drank a lot of water yeah, with no, it <laughs> but you know I, and again i think speaking of the 2021 lens i think he is doing that with all best intentions i think if he learns that, that a student has attempted suicide that then his first thought is well clearly she needs professional help the 2021 version is like if i don't report her i will be made liable and then my tenure will be threatened and therefore I have to. There you go. Second verse, same as the first. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you can look at the system itself as being obviously broken or, or skewed in certain ways. But I think as an individual, he is trying to do the right thing. Okay, fair enough. I will say also this whole like incident of her institutionalization is like the one, I say this jokingly, the one argument you can legitimately have against a national health care system because if she was in america and she was that poor she would not have gotten that care true uh, but of course also you have to remember like you know before you know ronald reagan came in you know there was a much more extensive network of you know, there was there was much more available care for psychiatric patients yes obviously a lot of those institutions were horrifying go watch titicut follies or something but i mean like the you know a lot of that a lot of the government safety net for that kind of thing got eliminated first in california by ronald reagan and then on a national level when he became president and so, you know, that's what that that's when you started seeing more like, you know, people living in the street because there was they did not have the sort of space to deal with sort of, you know, the I don't know what the categories are but like, oh, well, you're not threatening enough to yourself or others. We have nowhere to put you. So just, you know, off you go. Yes, we should have had more ratchets. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you have to go jump. You're on a Ryan Murphy kick today. What's happening? Yeah, you are. <laughs> when are we doing all about Murphy? <laughs> Don't call me for that one. <laughs> oh, I will not be participating either. So I will also not be participating. I will say, like, one of the other things that I really loved about this film is that, like, her alienation from, like, the rest of literary society was, like, very fun to me. I mean, obviously, like, so much of, like, those people are just, like middle class or, like, upper middle class or upper class uh, dilettantes who are, like, calling themselves writers but not like actually publishing anything i've already selected my publisher <laughs> <laughs> and then just sort of like going around like making fun of janet i 
I don't know. I like really intensely felt for her. And also it was just like this like really nice reminder of like how so much of I think like both like this movie and of like writerliness in general is about not fitting in. And so you were able to like have that space to the mental space and sort of like the actual space to be apart from people and then write about them. I think there's a thread that goes through most of Australian and New Zealand film where they basically will acknowledge there's some level of classism in their country, but that nobody does it like the Brits. And the second anybody goes to, yeah. to, to London or whatever, like that's when they really have to deal with the shit. And even if you're like a fancy Dan in Australia, the London people will look down on you as being, you know, a shit kicker from the, from the antipodes or whatever. And if you're from New Zealand. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I totally got that. Like here, you've got these people who are all like, chummy Oxbridge types and like here comes this farm girl from you know outside of Wellington or whatever and they don't know what to make of her you know I would like I would like a New Zealand cinematic universe where you know Janet Frame in the 1950s goes and gives a speech at a posh girls school and, and encounters you know the, the the two women from Heavenly Creatures uh, would love <laughs> would watch one thing that I wanted to uh, bring up because uh, you'd uh, mentioned it earlier, Ingu, is the like lack of suspense in this. I mean, I think that a lot of that is obviously because this is an actual like story about a person, real life stuff. So like real life doesn't necessarily have suspense in the way that like a narrative does. But it also meant that those like moments of actual shock were really shocking, which I in particular, I mean, the two deaths that she experienced of her sisters, I was very, very shaken by them just because I had no clue that they were coming. And like, the movie didn't foreshadow that in any way, really, because like, it just seems like this sweet, poor, idyllic childhood that then all of a sudden is punctured by these deaths. I think we give biopics a hard time, and rightly so, when they make shit up or manipulate events to make them more quote-unquote cinematic. Dramatic. You know, exactly, to, to sort of up the drama, the tension, the the suspense, whatever. And so, you know, I will happily trade that if you are going to give me a life story that feels that that does have the jolts of of real life where deaths come out of nowhere you know and where things aren't necessarily i mean you get a little foreshadowing you have the photo that the sister isn't in you know and they're like what well, you know and then suddenly and then she drowns you know so like that that Jane Campion loves her really hamfisted foreshadowing i'm just going to put that out there <laughs> uh you know and and I, I, like part of me wonders like would anybody make a movie like this that wasn't based on a real life like would anybody if they were just telling the story of some writer's life, would they allow it to be this relatively free form or would they feel the need to like build in beats and acts and, you know, recurring characters? Like, you know, we don't get a third poppy appearance. You would think from rule of three is like they would encounter each other again as adults or something, but nope, that's, that's gone. That's what I mean though. There's so many like loose threads with this. Sure. I think like one of the reasons why I found this like a really interesting but also like a really frustrating watch is that all of this crazy stuff happens to her and you get no reaction from her and you don't know like what she makes of them and what sense she makes of them what use she has for her art if any like her older sister dies you have no idea what her reaction is her younger sister dies you have no idea what her reaction is 
You only find out, like, her mom dies because, like, her dad also happened to die. And again, like, once her dad dies, there's no, like, reaction. Like, all you see, I think, thereafter is her going back. Well, she puts on the shoes. Oh, is that supposed to be her dad's shoes? Yeah, those are, that's, she's looking in, because they talk about how, oh, he didn't really take care of himself after the mother died. And then she's in his room and everything's kind of a mess. And then she puts the shoes on. I thought that was a really lovely moment. Okay. But I think, like, by and large, my point still stands about, like, how all of this, like, really crazy stuff happens to her. Like, what does she make of, like, having electroshock 200 times? Like, I want the movie to tell me. I don't want to, like, go back to these books that Alonzo will never read. Because I will <laughs> hey, also never read them. once you own a book, it's as if you've read it. <laughs> I possess it. That's what matters. Uh, I, I, I hear you, um, and I think that's a way to have told this story. I just That's I don't know, the way I, I wanted the story to be told. Okay. I did, but I feel like I come away from this with a pretty, you know, I, I th- this to me feels like a complete experience. It feels like a, a, a portrait of a life, and mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I, I, I can't disagree with any of the, 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 the details that you would have liked to have seen, but before having this conversation, I didn't sit here and think, oh, I wish you know, X, Y, or Z. I, I just think for me, it's a movie that really, that, that works. And, and I think that so often now when people do biopics, you know, it, it's become pretty much a cliche, certainly on film Twitter and in reviews where they'll ask, did these people not see walk hard, you know, because like, you know, this is a like walk hard. So punctures so many of the cliches, particularly of the music biopic, but of biopics in general, and people still do them. People still follow that path, you know, and every so often you'll get something like, I don't know, get on up that maybe we'll, we'll switch it around a little and, and not do the thing. But generally speaking, I feel like we're still, unless it's a musical, you know, unless it's like Rocket Man or something where, and even then I think you could still kind of point to like, you could map out the, 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 the biopic structure that it's all in flashback and it's all, yada, yada. Um, you know, this one to me doesn't feel like it is going into those well-worn grooves of like how an artist became an artist and overcame hardship and it came out all right at the end. And uh, you know, like it, 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 it feels shambly in the way that real life does. Well, and I also think that like what, you seem to be wanting Ingu is kind of what I took like like the wanting to see more of her experiencing the things to me that I just took this as like well that's that's what her writing is for her writing is to express herself and experience these things but we don't get a sense of her writing either i just wanted i think like more coherent character development because I really came away from this movie feeling like a bunch of stuff happened to this poor girl than poor woman and I think you know that's really sad but I would really like to know like how she be developed as a person in response to this stuff and also like an artist and I just don't know well you know what read a book (laughs) (laughs) no I mean I would be curious to hear if when Campion was making this, she felt like that the the New Zealand audience that she was originally making it for was versed enough or you know knew enough about this woman and her work that she didn't need to fill in those gaps, and that maybe on a global scale suddenly maybe she 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 would have done it differently if she'd understood that it was going to be you know that it was going to 
be the first film from New Zealand to play at the Venice Film Festival and then get, you know, widespread distribution in the United States and all these other parts of the world that maybe didn't know uh, Frame's work. That was absolutely, like, the thought that I had, that, like, she was making this movie for an audience that already came with some idea of who Janet Frame was. But I do think that, like, its reception at the Venice Film Festival really demonstrates how, like... Universal. Right, how appealing it is to people who might not even know the story. I just want to do, like, a really quick shout-out to the actresses. Yes. Janet Frame is played as a little girl by Alexia Keough, and then as a teenager by Karen Ferguson, and as an adult by Carrie Fox. These actresses look uncannily like each other, and especially between the adolescent version and the adult version, it was so seamless that... Like, we couldn't figure out where the split would have happened. Yeah, like a dewy-skinned teenager, and then also like a 30-something-year-old woman. We were like, wait... Like, this movie clearly did not have, like, the biggest budget. So, like, how did they get, like, this time machine in order to, like, put Carrie Fox back into, like, a 16-year-old version of herself? Take that, Aileen. (laughs) 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 Well, and I think we have to give a lot of credit to um, the wig of this movie. Uh, yeah, Alexia Keogh, like, uh, who this was the one film she ever did, but she is incredibly expressive and she she works that that hair like nobody's business. All right, well, that's about it for our discussion of Angel at My Table. But before we go, let's do some rankings real quick. I think we can rank an Angel at My Table above Sweetie. Oh yeah, definitely. Piano, Bright Star, Angel at My Table, Sweetie. That's how that's that's where it goes. Sweetie will remain at the end until proven otherwise. Until you watch Holy Smoke. <laughs> well, that's our episode. Thank you so much, Alonzo, for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we hope we did not ruin your memories of an Angel at My Table too much. <gasps> Never. Thank you. This was great. Always a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. And the next time I see a dirty child, I will think of the two of you. (laughs) I'll I'll take it. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to email us, we're at allaboutfilmpod at gmail.com. And otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. Mm